good day. You're listening to Dialogues on Future Primitive with Joanna Harcourt-Smith and Mike Hagan. We'll be back in just a minute with this month's presentation. Well, hello and welcome to Dialogues on FuturePrimitive.org. My name is Mike Hagan. Stick around, we've got a couple hours of great internet radio coming toward you. Each month, my partner Joanna Harcourt-Smith and I get together and try to bring you the cutting edge in ecology, permaculture, sustainable living, and global transformation. This month, Joanna will be presenting a wonderful interview with Daniel Pinchbeck, the author of 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. We'll follow that up with an interview that I did recently with John Major Jenkins, the author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. Amazing, provocative information from Daniel Pinchbeck and John Major Jenkins in just a moment on Dialogues. You can always find information about Dialogues on the web at www.futureprimitive.org. Good evening, everybody. This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith with futureprimitive.org. I am talking with Daniel Pinchbeck uh, tonight, which is today in uh, New York. He's in New York. I'm in Spain. Daniel Pinchbeck is the author of Breaking Open the Head and a new book, which is called 2012, the return of Quetzalcoatl. And I'm going to ask Daniel if he would like to introduce himself to uh, our listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I wrote these two books. Uh, Breaking Open the Head was about shamanism and psychedelics, particularly used in uh, indigenous Cultures. I went down through different. I went through different tribal initiations and experiences. I went to West Africa and uh, went through an initiation to the Bwiti tribe in Gabon, taking iboga. And I worked with a tribe in the Amazon and Ecuador, taking ayahuasca. And I visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, taking uh, mushrooms. And then I also write about um, sort of uh, the Burning Man festival in the United States as a kind of postmodern archaic revival. And uh, I kind of examined, I mean, I started the book as a kind of secular materialist, and I ended up finding myself sort of convinced by the shamanic or mystical worldview. And that led to 2012, which is a kind of deep dive into prophecies. Once I once I sort of, sort of opened up to the shamanic worldview, I felt I had to take seriously what, what these cultures were saying about the world that we're in and what's going to happen in the near future. And I learned that the uh, Hopis had Hopi had uh, prophecies about this time, and especially the Mayan calendar uh, seemed to be a kind of precision instrument for, uh, for for sort of suggesting when there might be some huge change in the nature of the world. I heard Terence McKenna also speak about uh, the fact that there will be an enormous change at that time, and you write about Terence in your new book. Yeah, I think uh, he's definitely very profound uh, and amazing and astonishing and also humorous and fun thinker. 
and um, he put a lot of incredible ideas out there. Uh, I mean, one thing I would I would just say in response to what you just said is I think that we're already in uh, this transformation process. I mean, in my own life, there seems to be, and I think a lot of people that I know are feeling the same thing, uh, an amazing sort of upsurge of synchronistic and psychic events. And on many levels, it really feels like we, we've entered a different uh, reality even than we were in, in 10 or even 7 or 5 years ago. So there does seem to be this kind of uh, acceleration taking place. And in some way, the Mayan calendar seems to be a kind of uh, instrument for understanding this. Well, I'll tell you how I heard uh, of you. Um, Dieter Hagenbach uh, wrote an email to uh, many of us who had been to the uh, conference, the LSD conference in Basel, and he highly recommended your books. And I ordered your books from Amazon.com, and a night, one night, about two weeks ago, I settled this event to read your book. And you were talking about um, you were talking about World on Fire, and uh, I realized that I had just received the book, and I had been in Huautla with Michael about a month ago. So I thought that was one of those very special and almost common at this point, so-called coincidences. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are things that are, are genuinely uncanny, uh, and then there are also sort of experiences that happen because there is a kind of group that has a kind of focused interest in certain areas. Because it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to distinguish. But um, yeah, I mean, Michael has been a really key figure for me. I mean, I published uh, World on Fire, which was a long book-length poem, sort of rant about corporate globalization and the oil companies, and he talked about uh, ayahuasca in 2012. Uh, Michael really introduced me to the Mayan calendar stuff. He gave me a copy of The Mayan Factor by Jose Arguelles, yeah. and he also introduced me to Ayahuasca. And then uh, in return, I introduced him to the crop circles. He actually came out with me to England the summer that I really spent out in southern England studying the crop circles in depth, and he ended up uh, sort of agreeing with me that it was a very uh, mischievous and, and mysterious and uh, a phenomenon that was not really explicable by uh, by normal means. I really like what you uh, your chapter about the crop circles, and I really love the fact that you say that it's both and rather than taking a particular stand. Yeah, I mean th- throughout the book, that that seemed to be what what was sort of developed was this different almost relationship to logic. Like um, the Western mind has been very dualistic. We don't really like ambiguity, and we like to sort of grasp for like one side or the other side of, of a of a duality, or we collapse things into dualities. And I got very interested in this idea that that that, that there's sort of instead of dualities, you can talk about polarities and paradoxes. And a lot of times, the way to correctly navigate a paradox is not to take one side or the other, but to kind of recognize that both sides are operating simultaneously. And um, so that's kind of the, the logic that develops in the course of doing the book. Daniel, I've been thinking about a question I want to ask you. And would you say that shamans usually practice in nature? Do they usually practice in nature? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, we have an association with, with the shamans in the natural world and, and um, you know, plants... Um, 
you know, plant shamanism certainly is a special relationship between shamans and, and, and the natural world of the plant kingdom. But um, I, I really tend to look at it more as a kind of universal human phenomenon. And, um, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, I more and more think that everything is part of like a kind of non-dual evolutionary process. So it's ultimately maybe you can't even make those kind of distinctions between natural and artificial uh, or natural and social the, the way we like to make them, you know. Would you say that there might be such thing as urban shaman? Uh, yeah, I, 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 definitely, definitely. So, um, let's speak a little more about shamanism. Given what we know about societies that honored their shaman, um, do you think that shamans are essential to the health and survival of the planet at this time in our society? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like, um, that, you know, there's some cautions, like, you know, the, the, there's been this kind of new age kind of uh, valorizing of the shaman and turning the shaman into this, this kind of heroic, uh, positive figure of healing. And that probably is a bit of a simplification. Uh, you know, sh shamans were often kind of ambivalent or double-edged figures who were, who were kind of feared in, in, their, in their tribal societies. Um, they, they, they had the knowledge, they had this, this incredible power, but it could be used for, uh, for good or ill. Um, so I do think that um, have, re returning to a, uh, you know, reopening relationships to these, these other states of consciousness and other states of being and the, and the kind of knowledge that uh, comes through uh, shamanic states is really, really key to our survival or, or as a species or kind of transformation as a species, which is necessary to our survival. Um, but, I, but I, yeah, but I think that we have to be careful to recognize that, that shamanism is a, is, is a very complex phenomenon. Um, and I think like um, what I really like, for instance, in my new book, I talk about the Santo Daime, which is uh, an a religion in uh, Brazil that was started by uh, Mestizo, rubber tappers in the Amazon, and it kind of mixes uh, Christianity with, uh, you know, sort of tribal mysticism. And I, th I think it's a very powerful uh, experience, and it provides a very positive uh, access to these, to these uh, sort of states of consciousness through ayahuasca. Um, and, and somehow creates a very positive container for those energies. Um, so, yeah, there might even be more new forms of, of spiritual practice will emerge as we kind of integrate uh, shamanism with our kind of modern uh, empiricism and our modern kind of ethical worldview and our, and our complex culture. Well, this leads me to ask you exactly what do you think of this syncretism, this melange, like for instance when we were in Puebla recently uh, visiting Mama Julieta, uh, there was a lot of uh, Christian, um, Christian syntax thrown in with the beautiful indigenous um, ritual, sort of like Santa Daime as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think that um, 
it's been interesting as as I mean a lot of people who are as modern Westerners interested in shamanism and mysticism, the the tradition that we've had the hardest time sort of dealing with or integrating is our own tradition, the kind of uh, Christian uh, tradition, because we can see that it's been responsible for so much misery and this kind of alienation from nature and, and colonialism, you know, suppression, you know, burning of the witches and so on. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, negative aspects in the Orthodox Christian religion, but somehow I think that we're going to we need to kind of look look at the sort of Gnostic roots of Christianity and and examine like the kind of multifaceted archetype that that, that was the Christ and and uh, that's that's sort of an, you know that's another aspect of the sort of coming to consciousness of humanity. Um, and I discuss this in the book as, as from the Jungian perspective, that Christ kind of uh, symbolized this uh, archetype of the uh, incarnation of the self um, and uh, the difficulties of trying to kind of bring the uh, transcendent reality down to the material plane. So for me, it's a very natural process that there would be these, these syncretic religions. Uh, and um, it's been interesting watching myself and a lot of people I know uh, sort of struggle with their antipathy towards uh, the figure of the Christ and Christianity mm-hmm. and uh, sort of try to, you know, a lot of people I know still totally reject it. Uh, but but for me, if you, if you look at the whole thing, you know, as this kind of, you know, this Jungian idea that there's this collective uh, unconscious or collective psyche that's, that's uh, sort of throwing out these archetypes and then the archetypes are kind of enacted, uh, then certainly the archetype of Christ is a really crucial one. Yes, and uh, uh, perhaps we could say that um, the archetype of Quetzalcoatl as well, or Avalokiteshvara, um, is a masculine archetype. And um, as a woman, um, I have questions about that. Okay, what are your questions? Well, simply, uh, does this include the feminine? Does it include the feminine? Well, I mean, I think there are there are archetypes that are a bit more masculine and a bit more feminine. I just saw Ama uh, Amachi over the weekend, yeah. who's the Indian hugging saint who yeah. incarnates the energy of the mother. You know, and that's a you know completely feminine archetype. Um, uh, you know, I mean, although, like, you know, I mean, I have a daughter who's almost five years old, and, and, you know, I spend a lot of time with her, so doing that has kind of helped me to access some of my own kind of, like, you know, uh, nurturing maternal qualities as well as paternal qualities. Um, but essentially, it's still a feminine archetype. So there are archetypes that are more um, masculine and, and more feminine, perhaps. Um, and uh, it does seem like Quetzalcoatl, uh, has a slightly masculine sort of aspect to it, but I don't know if that's really like too crucially important. I, I, I mean, I do see it more ultimately as a kind of like uh, frequency of consciousness or, or, or level of consciousness that um, when we attain it would be kind of about integration, yeah. because Quetzalcoatl is, is a symbol of the uh, fusion of the, of the bird and the snake. Yeah. Uh, so it's the, the you know heaven and earth or spirit and matter, and one way to look at that would be the integration of sort of esoteric mysticism and the kind of modern Western empirical knowledge system. Uh, so I feel that, that 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 integration is something that is going on in a, in a lot of respects throughout throughout our culture now, 
and um, somehow Council Quad represents the, the uh, summation of that, of that process. Uh, Daniel, you uh, write that the, the mother of the forest, the vine, said to you, go deeper into the physical to get to the infinite. Could you comment on that? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I found that, I mean, that remains a very resonant uh, comment for me. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm still kind of working with it in a sense. I mean, I think, like, our, 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 our heritage of, of mysticism, I mean, really, in a sense, both Eastern and Western, has had a very transcendent uh, kind of emphasis. And uh, the idea is that through some kind of, kind of mortification or asceticism, you're going to go out and connect with this kind of, transcendent uh, dimension of reality. Um, but this is almost suggesting the opposite, that, that sort of uh, our, our sort of future progress is really enmeshed in, in, the, uh, in the earthly. And um, we haven't gone deep enough into, uh, into the physical. Uh, so it's almost like a reversal of, of, of direction. I just find it really neat. I mean, um, it reminds me a little bit of uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about heaven, where he talked about heaven as actually being very much like the earth, except there's an incredible intensification. So that when you first get to heaven, like uh, every, every blade of grass like hurts your foot, and every drop of water leaves a bruise. You have to get get slowly begin to deal with such an intensified uh, reality. Um, so yeah, it's, to me, it really also suggests our present situation, where if we want to deal with the uh, Sort of global cataclysms that we've unleashed due to our kind of uh, crude industrialization, it's going to require a huge kind of uh, increase or intensification of consciousness and awareness and sort of thinking through all of the different aspects of the biosphere and, uh, you know, the di different uh, ecological conditions that we've created. Do you think that this will apply to... Um all this will ripple through all levels of society. Um, which one? The, the idea that we go down and in rather than up and out? The idea that we we will in the next few years that our that our so to speak our consciousness will change and evolve in the next few years. Right. Well, as I said, I think it's already happening. Uh, but definitely it's, 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 ha it's happening to a small group, but I think there will be a point where there's a kind of transmission or transfer to a much larger uh, section of the population. Um, kind of like, I mean, I mean, for me, I always have this, you know, in my own head, my, my, my mother was involved with the beat generation in the 50s, and she was actually involved with Kerouac when On the Road came out. Mm -hmm. So she saw this tiny little group of scraggly beats, you know, suddenly explode over the years after that into being this massive social movement of the hippies. So um, I think there's a similar potential for, for uh, growth here. And um, basically, I mean, where we are with the planetary situation is that we're being forced to make or impelled if we, if we want to survive as a species. Now is the time where we have to make a huge shift in our activities, which requires a shift in consciousness. I mean, if you look at the species extinction crisis alone, they're talking about 25% of all species being gone in the next 30 years which, you know, could basically mean that there wouldn't even be any sort of large land mammals left because once you pull apart the web of life to that extent, there's going to be huge uh, collapses. So if that's the case in 30 years, it really means the next, like, three to five years are critical. By that point, we really have to have a whole new infrastructure in place and a whole kind of uh, culture aimed at, aimed at sustainability uh, on every level. 
so I, you know if we're going to survive as 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 a sort of a species if we're going to if we're going to continue to evolve um then really the next few years are, are crucial and i mean it's pretty amazing i mean you know some people don't believe that the mayans could have possibly known that this would happen at this time but you know forget about the mayan calendar by 2012 we're going to we're going to have a good sense one way or the other whether whether we're going to make it through this transition could you give me some examples of um, of societies that are living in a different way, or perhaps examples of what you are doing in your own life to um, to to organically work within the change that is happening? Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm personally more of a kind. I mean. Once again, I don't think there is a society we can really point to yet as a model. I mean, there are people who are trying to set up sustainable communities, whether in Costa Rica or, in, you know, to probably different parts of Europe or in the northwest of America, and that's that's an ongoing experiment, which I, I don't I don't I don't even know to what extent it's been attained. Uh, and what's clear to me is that you know when we go into this different paradigm, everything changes. I mean, language may shift, personal the whole model of personal relationships might change. Uh, the model of the family might change, so it's going to be it's going to be a multi-tiered kind of transformation process. And in my own life, uh, you know, I, I, what I what I've basically been working on is this project called Evolver, and uh, we're trying to create a kind of uh, large-scale media and membership program that could assist in this process of transformation and help people get different tools and 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 uh, concepts and training and stuff like that. Uh, whether it's alternative energy or permaculture, uh, I mean, I, you know, I've grown up in New York. I've never farmed or, or grown a vegetable or done anything remotely along those lines. So, but for me, it's, it's, it's I, for some reason, it's natural to think in terms of kind of strategic, big picture kind of kind of possibilities. And um, you know, I, I think that in a way that is that is necessary right now, so that we have a different model of where this thing could go. Daniel, do you think that um, taking sacraments, um, doing psychedelics, and has has helped you envision a much bigger picture? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, there's there's no doubt that the the, the work with um, sacraments and plant medicines or uh, psychedelic drugs, you know, uh, as they're known, uh, has been really really crucial and. Um, but, you know, if you if my first book, Breaking Open the Head, I really described that I was in this crisis, kind of total spiritual crisis, and went back and explored psychedelics. Then I just had sort of one opening after another, and I generally think that they, um, you know, they, they they decondition you from from your current society, and they sort of at least temporarily give you a, a, a sort of they, they liberate you from your ego, so you can see your behavior differently, mm-hmm. and um, they also give you a different sense of time. So you recognize that there is this kind of timeless present moment that we've kind of lost or become separated from in the, in the way we kind of live in time in this society. So on so many levels, they give you a uh, they can give you a matrix for for rethinking your your kind of beliefs and um, and sort of deconditioning your perception. And I mean that's why they were considered such powerful tools in the 1960s, and then why they were so uh, rigorously suppressed. Do you think there's a positive a legacy from the 1960s? Uh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think um, a lot of really, really crucial thinking and ideas were, were opened up in the 1960s, 
Uh, and then there was this kind of interesting suppression that took place, and a lot of those ideas went underground. Um, and what I what I talk about in Breaking Up in the Head is the 60s were kind of um, uh, attempted mass cultural voyage of shamanic initiation, but because uh, there weren't kind of guides in place and, and wise men and and initiates kind of ready, uh, the, the, the process sort of fell apart and people lost themselves. Uh, so even somebody as sophisticated as John Lennon talks about how he tripped on LSD till he destroyed his own ego and it took him like 10 years to, to patch it back together. Uh, so now I think that there's a kind of resurgence of shamanism that's really, you know, owes a great debt to what happened in the 60s and in some senses we've learned what not to do. And um, hopefully this kind of initiatory process is coming around again and can now sort of complete itself. Would that be with the younger generation then? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not really... I, one thing I think that no longer really exists is, is the generation gap. Uh, I mean, it's actually very interesting. In, in the structure of the Mayan calendar, there are these kind of 20, 20 times accelerations. So you had, um, you know, according to this guy, Carl Johan Kalman's kind of hypothesis on it, uh, starting in 1999, we entered this eighth phase of, of sort of consciousness evolution. And in this phase, every basically every year, every 360 days, is equivalent to nearly 20 years or 19 point something years before 199, which was equivalent to almost 400 years before 1755. So basically the idea is that we're experiencing as much growth and development and evolution of consciousness now in one year as was being experienced in 20 years previously to 1999 or 400 years uh, before 1755. And one thing that, if you, I think one sort of thing that's interesting is if you think about the concept of a generation gap, like in the 60s or 70s or even the 50s, people talked about how there seemed like this 20-year generation gap. It was almost like, you know, children couldn't understand their elders were 20 years older. There was just a different frequency of consciousness that they were on. But I don't think that that generation gap exists anymore because we're in this more accelerated time frame. So it's, no really, it's not really long, any longer about younger generation versus older generation. It's about a more collective uh, growth process and a kind of transfer of knowledge and, and skills uh, across all age groups. Yes, the flow between human beings. Yeah. You say, which I thought was very uh, amusing, you say that the, the nanotechnology age might last eight minutes. I mean, you know, it was, it was definitely a joke, but yeah, it, it, joke. it just seems like there's been this, um, you know, accelerating effects of technology and also accelerating negative impacts of each, of each new form of technology. So every time we get excited about this new technology that's going to save our lives and be so amazing, then it turns out that it releases, you know, um, crops that are totally resistant to... Uh, you know, weeds that proliferate like crazy because they've got bioengineered uh, genetics or something or, or, or insane species or something. So, yeah, so nanotechnology is obviously incredibly powerful potential, but it's kind of harrowing to think of what might actually happen when it's unleashed. And in the book, I really, I really suggest that um, we have to stop putting our faith in technology as a kind of savior, which is always sort of putting our faith in something away and outside of us and really orient ourselves differently towards uh, technique and towards like being in 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 the reality that we're in. Uh, and you know, it's obvious that technology is a kind of crucial part of our evolution as a species. That somehow it's like gotten away from us. Uh, we we've sort of reified it and made it something like almost outside of our control. That's that's running us. 
Um, so it becomes kind of like our unleashed uh, shadow projection. So somehow, if we're going to shift in consciousness and sort of take, you know, take masters in other, the planetary situation, we're going to have to bring technology back under our, under our conscious intent. What would you say, Daniel, to somebody who felt excited about buying your book at this point? And say you would say two or three things that you really wanted to get across in your book, your latest book, 2012. Uh, well, I mean, I would say that um, the book is, is really a tool uh, to help people just, just think about the planetary situation in a different way. And, um, and that it's also, hopefully offers a very positive uh, vision of, of where we could go. Um, that I think we're seeing, we're sort of in this, you know, period of the apocalypse, this kind of revealing and uncovering, which is what the word apocalypse means, of all, of all this negativity. And, um, but that's a good, a good sign. And it's like we have to go through this kind of purging process so that we can move into something that I think will be very, very, uh, you know, kind of exhilarating and, and, and extraordinary. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the message of the book would be like, you know, fasten your seatbelts and, uh, you know, let, let's work together to, uh, to, to pull something amazing into manifestation because it's really just hovering uh, beyond our grasp right now. But what about the people who uh, just are just working to uh, pay their mortgage and their car and who can't see outside of the prison of the everyday obligations they think they have? Mm-hmm. Will, will they come along? Will, is there a chance that... Well, I, I think that the way that transformation happens, it happens with a small elite group first, and then there's a point where it transfers to a much uh, larger group. And uh, this is sort of the concept of like a, a phase shift, you know. Uh, and I think that um, if, if we're in this process of the apocalypse, um, which the Jungians talk about as sort of the... Uh, the coming of the self into conscious realization. Um, you know, a lot of people's sort of trance of conditioning is, is going to be snapped. Um, it may be through, you know, one day they go to the gas pump and they, there's no gas there, or the gas is $10 a gallon. Or, you know, suddenly they, 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 they just recognize that um, the, the, the glue that, that seems to have been holding together uh, the society is, is not holding it together anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that, that, that break in conditioning could be very shocking. But hopefully there can be a sort of infrastructure in place and a new vision in place that, that will give them a whole different set of possibilities. Um, so, yeah, I think like um, for those people who are kind of the elite of consciousness who, who've been, you know, doing their inner work and their meditation and shamanism and thinking through these ideas, you know, those people uh, have to be ready to step into kind of leadership roles in society mm-hmm. and actually, you know, you know, are going to have to do a lot of work to, you know, make, make the situation okay for those people who are, who are more in a trance-like condition. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I don't see any reason why that can't happen. Daniel Pinchbeck, are you surprised to be the person you are today compared to the person you were? I'm absolutely astonished. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm, every time I start talking about this stuff, um, 
I find it totally astonishing and bizarre that you know I'm talking about this stuff. Uh, it's, it's not it's not what I set out to do, but it's, for me it's been very kind of a logical pathway. You know, sort of one thing led to the next, and uh, I, I just had this, uh, I guess, the gumption, you know, or, or the uh, naivete mm-hmm. to kind of uh, keep going on on this trajectory. So yet, so astonishing, but yet logical. Exactly. Again, the paradox. Exactly. And I'm saying this because uh, I feel this exactly the same way. I'm very surprised to be who I am today, but also consider that I'm exactly who I've, I always wanted to be. And so I wish that to everybody in a, in a certain way. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I feel I feel very lucky. I mean... I guess in a way, like part of my realization from this whole story, which, you know, probably Timothy Leary had a similar realization at one point, is that the world is sort of an illusion or, or, a, or a fiction or a dream. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, I think like a tip off in the, in the Mayans is their name, Maya, which in the Eastern traditions means the world of illusion or the sort of magical creative power of the gods and maintaining the illusion of reality. So if this world is some kind of illusion or, or a dream projection, um, I feel very, very thankful to have been uh, given such a good, good view. <laughs> yes, yes. You say samsara is nirvana, and nirvana is samsara. You say that in your book. Well, I don't say it, but yeah, that's that's, that's a common statement in uh, Buddhism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, can you speak a bit about compassion? Sh- sure. In what sense? Well, what? Um, perhaps just speak about it in a in a general sense, in a, in a society sense, how you how you see that the evolution of compassion in our society today? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in the highest sense, like um, wh- you know, when you have certain realizations, uh, compassion is is in a weird way like uh, totally self-interest. You know, you you don't want to suffer unnecessarily. And you don't want to have other people suffering unnecessarily. It just creates kind of unpleasant uh, vibrations. You know, like uh, it, it makes everything kind of uh, kind of harsh. And, and 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 so I think compassion is just kind of a, a, nat- a natural outgrowth of one's own uh, development as a person. Um, and um, I guess uh, I think like. We, we, if, if, I mean, one way to look at this transition, this is the way the Santo Daime, I guess, would look at it, would be the, the shift into a kind of uh, heart-centered uh, consciousness, so sort of the opening of the heart chakra, mm-hmm. uh, which I think will, will lead to a huge kind of outpouring of uh, love and generosity and compassion. And sometimes you can really almost feel that kind of frequency. I mean, I think people are just like so uh, sick and... Um, Sort of over the, the the sort of violence and, and, and degradation of of the society that we're in, and they're really they're really just waiting for that for that new vision to kind of uplift them into something else. Um, I mean, you feel that really like I mean, I wasn't here for the blackout a couple of summers ago, but apparently that was the general sense was just this total uh, enthusiasm for 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 change and for a situation that forced people to kind of collaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after 9/11, you felt that a little bit. So um, you know, I definitely feel like we've 
brought on the, the crisis in order to make kind of evolution as a, as a species into a higher level of compassionate consciousness. And uh, what about the Palestinians and uh, and Israel and Lebanon right now? Well, I mean, I think that generally, like, we're this is a really crucial period um, in that um, we don't necessarily have to go through uh, the full kind of harrowing of hell, you know, as, as it's projected in the Book of Revelations and, and sort of the apocalypse archetype. Uh, that 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 harrowing of hell can be you know, gone through it as a, as a personal journey uh, or, or, you know, through one's own initiatory process without having to actually be physically inflicted on the planet uh, to the extent that it might be. I mean, it's certainly it's, all, it's already happening in places all around the world. There are genocides and wars and irradiation, depleted uranium and so on. But, you know, basically there has to be uh, that moment, that sort, of, that sort of collective moment where, where uh, people just don't want to do it anymore. They're just done with it. And um, uh, I think we're, we're approaching that moment. It may happen much, much sooner and much faster than anybody could imagine. And just, the, just the way the Berlin Wall suddenly, you know, disappeared. You know, I don't think anybody, as far as I know, had predicted that that could happen. You know, that this kind of rigidification of, of, the, of these barriers seemed kind of eternal until they just melt away, you know. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I also want to ask you if you have some idea of um, what you think is happening to the planet, to the living organism of the planet itself, through um, what is being inflicted on her. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if it's really a question of it being inflicted upon her. As I said, I really take this non-dualistic perspective. Uh, I mean... One thing that's really interesting is that astronomers are learning right now that the whole solar system is uh, changing uh, at, a, at a very accelerated rate. Uh, and uh, the, you know, there's shifts in the sun's magnetic field, uh, shifts in the Earth's magnetic field. I mean, maybe like everything we're doing with electromagnetic radiation and cell phones, you know, it seems like we're doing it, but it's really this kind of non-dual process that the Earth has to pass through. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I sort of look at it more like that. I mean, there's, there's definitely a kind of perilous transition, but it's also clearly a, uh, you know, uh, the, the one that we're facing now. Um, and um, I, I think underlying it is it's, it's this kind of like shakedown before this kind of deeper harmonic uh, alignment uh, takes place. Uh, sort of very much like a kind of teenage uh, crisis. Uh, when, the, when the teenager, uh, you know, sort of drinks and drives too fast and goes right to the edge of destroying him or herself before they sort of become an adult that forces kind of initiatory crisis on themselves. Or I think another good kind of symbol would be, um, you know, kind of uh, fetal development and birth mm -hmm. and how birth seems to be such a violent process, but it's actually the only way to bring new life into being, you know. So you're optimistic about the future of your little girl? Uh, I think things are going to rock. I really do. I mean, I mean, it's just it's just a question of uh, this different realization of becoming commonplace, and uh, just you know, nobody's going to want to do this anymore. You know, we've had it. You know, and and really, if you look at somebody like Herbert Marcuse, who, who I discussed in the book, I mean, starting in the 1940s, we should have been moving towards a global leisure society, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and reducing people's hours and, and creating 
you know, kind of a whole creative nexus. And um, you know, that's that's what we're going to have to do in in the in the future, and we're going to enjoy doing it. And we're going to enjoy just just tackling the, the problems that face us. Um, so. Yeah, and then, and then the other aspect, which is fascinating, is this whole kind of psychic dimension is coming into focus so quickly. Um, one comparison that a few people make, and, and which I discussed in my book, is if you think about the 1750s, which was this earlier uh, shift uh, to the Industrial Revolution. That was also, in 1755, was the beginning of the seventh phase on the, on the Mayan kind of uh, phase shifts of consciousness, according to Kalman. In the 1750s, you know, people had seen lightning and uh, experienced uh, experienced it, but they had no concept that you could bring electricity down and make it something transformative that would uh, change the whole nature of the world and create industrial grids across the planet. And what if we're now at a similar threshold with uh, psychic energy and psychic phenomena, that more and more people are becoming consciously aware of, of, its, of its functioning all the time, uh, but we don't yet know how to make it into a kind of transformative energy that that, that works that works down here, uh, and that I think is part of the the switch that's about to be uh, flicked. Do you feel more and more parts of the connecting of the dots? Oh yeah, I mean it's, it really feels like we're moving into this kind of uh, Bach fugue state right now. Daniel, I really appreciate talking with you, and I appreciate your vision of this beautiful positive explosion that we are living at this point, explosion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you if there is anything else you would like to share with our listeners. Well, I think we've covered some of the, the main points. Uh, I, mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's very worthwhile to, 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 I mean, a lot of people have a lot of doubts about the crop circles, but I think it, it's, it's very worthwhile to pay attention to them, uh, especially during the summer. And um, probably the best web website for tracking them is um, cropcircleconnector.com, uh, where you can see, I mean, I think it's worth looking at the 2005 formations and, the, and then the recent ones. And there have really been some extraordinary ones in the last uh, few weeks, which are definitely kind of uh, suggestive of a kind of birthing into a higher dimensional realm or higher dimensional space. Delicious. <laughs> now, uh, would you give us um, your, your website? I, mean, I have a website for my past book, which is on breakingopenthehead.com, and that includes uh, a discussion board. And then there's uh, evolver.net, uh, which is pretty much under construction now, but we hope to get it going, really going in the winter. And uh, then beyond that, I really hope that people will, will read uh, 2012, and that's available at any bookstore or at Amazon. Uh, cause I, as I said, I think it's an incredible, uh, you know, it's the best I could do. Anyway, my best shot at giving people a whole toolkit of different ways of thinking about this transition we're in so that they can really uh, solidify their understanding of it. Well, I love your two books. I'm still reading them. And uh, I think you're a terrific Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> <laughs> Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Well, hopefully I'm managing to put some of the pieces back together. Oh, yes, you are. You are. <laughs> All right. Totally. Well, thank, you, thank you very much. That was great. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. Wonderful information there being brought to you by Joanna Harcourt-Smith from Daniel Pinchback. 
You can find information about Daniel at www.breakingopenthehead.com. All right, stick around. We've got another great interview coming up with John Major Jenkins, and you're listening to Dialogues on futureprimitive.org. My name is Mike Hagan, for myself and the traveling Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Back in just a moment. Over 2,000 years ago, the early Maya formulated a profound galactic cosmology. They saw that the sun on the winter solstice was slowly moving toward the heart of the galaxy. Naturally enough, with their uncorrupted intelligence intact, they suspected that the world would go through a transformation when the solar and galactic planes aligned. They devised their long count calendar to target when the cosmic alignment would maximize. And that time is 2012 A.D. We are lucky that the brilliant sky watchers who devised the 2012 calendar left carved monuments for us to decode and that they have survived the decay of centuries so that we can know exactly what they prophesied and believed about 2012. Incredibly, at the early Maya site of Izapa in southern Mexico, the galactic cosmology and a profound spiritual teaching are preserved. Izapa speaks to us of the galactic alignment of 2012 as a transformative nexus in time, a still point turnabout, inviting us to reconnect with our cosmic heart and eternal source, with the divine wisdom. But how can that be achieved? What is the original undiluted prophecy for 2012, divined by those ancient mystics and stargazers who invented the 2012 calendar themselves? Izapa's carved monuments provide the answers. And now, for the first time in two millennia, the secrets of the Mayan sacred science have been decoded. Now we can directly read the 2012 revelation right at its source. His name is John Major Jenkins. He's an independent researcher. He's devoted himself and his career, his life's work, to the reconstruction and understanding of the ancient Mayan cosmology and philosophy. He has written a number of books uh, including Journey to the Mayan Underworld, Mirror in the Sky, and Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, a book that I read, gosh, going on eight years now ago, 1998, I guess it was, and it uh, literally blew me away. And he's done a whole lot of other things, and we'll uh, let him explain some of them to us. But without further delay, let's say a big welcome and thank you to John Major Jenkins. John, thanks so much for being on the program. I am here. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome, absolutely, and I'm very pleased to have you as well. And i got a whole uh, boatload of questions here to uh, ask your insight in tonight, so really looking forward to it. Where, where should we start? Where are you at, John? You're actually, we're talking to you from Colorado. What part, what part of uh, Colorado are you in? I'm in uh, northern Colorado, not in the mountains, but uh, in the plains, about uh, 10 miles out from the Front Range. Okay, well, look, let's uh, for the listeners that aren't familiar with your work let's do a little bit of a background framework because the story is such a fascinating one that before we get into the story let's talk a little bit about how you got there because that in and of itself must be a pretty interesting story so maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about how you got interested in the Maya and their calendrics and uh, and, oh, yeah. and then eventually this astronomical stuff all these galactic alignments and stuff that we're going to talk about yeah, a little bit of background first and uh, some basics on the calendar systems. 
Well, as you said, going back about 20 years, um, I became interested in the Maya. I guess I'd always been interested in Native American cultures and belief systems, and I was always an avid reader, and uh, Frank Waters was an author that I, I read um, about 20 years ago. He, he wrote that amazing book called uh, The Book of the Hopi, mm. the Hopi Indians, and their prophecies and their ceremonies and their rituals and their symbolism. And uh, it was fascinating to me uh, that uh, the Hopi were still out there in Arizona and they were a tribe that uh, was still clinging tenaciously to existence and trying to uh, retain and preserve their, their ancient beliefs. And, mm. and then, I, then I read Frank Waters' book, Mexico Mystique, and I, I've learned through the years that in talking with other people that this book by Frank Waters, which uh, came out in 1975, actually turned on a lot of people to the Mayan prophecies and because uh, he, he talked about the Maya calendar in there. And um, Well, th this book really got me thinking about taking a trip south of the border. And I was living in... Boulder, Colorado at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, so I made a plan, and I saved up a little money and uh, sketched out the itinerary and went south of the border, and, and that was really an amazing transformative trip, traveling around on a shoestring, <laughs> uh, taking buses and trains and hitchhiking, and I was gone for about four months. That was back in 1986, 87. Mm -hmm and uh, made it to some of the really amazing archaeological sites like Palenque and Tikal and uh, these places in southern Mexico and Guatemala. And uh, But most of all, what was really intriguing to me and what I really wanted to find out uh, more about was the villages of uh, Mayan people that I'd read about. Another book I read at this time was uh, Barbara Tedlock wrote a book called Time and the Highland Maya. That was really a fascinating book. Uh, pretty ethnographic, but um, what came through from that was that the Maya calendar, the 260-day sacred calendar, very ancient tradition, was still surviving in the highlands uh, of Guatemala. Guatemala, yeah. yeah. You, know, uh, you know, John, I've interviewed Barbara Tedlock. She's a friend of mine. Oh, great. Her and her husband, Dennis... Uh, who's, a, who's a genius himself, and who, who wrote the, the the preeminent work on the on the Popol Vuh? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, they stay with me when they come through Columbia because they they travel from the university, uh, you know, in Buffalo up there. They're they're both brilliant professors at the University of uh, or at uh, State University of New York at Buffalo, but they spend the, they spend the summers in Santa Fe, and so they drive through here. But at, at any rate, I'm so glad you brought up Barbara's name because I love her and she's done great work. Well, they are really key uh, scholars, I think. Uh, I've really respected and appreciated their open-mindedness and their scholarship. It's quite an amazing thing that uh, Barbara and Dennis both were apprenticed mm. to become daykeepers. Yeah. And that happened in the mid-70s, and, and they both went on to write amazing mm. books about the Maya. No doubt. And uh, Dennis Tedlock, in particular... Uh, his translation of the 
Kiche Maya Popol Vuh, the hero twin creation myth. Mm-hmm. That is really an amazing translation. Uh, the first edition came out in 1985. Uh, it's really amazing because Dennis had a real sensitivity to the astronomical content mm. of the mythology. Yes. And, and the relationships between mythology and astronomy. Uh, that's really a key to understanding uh, the Mayan paradigm. Huh, amazing. I, I, I fully agree. I think that's wonderful. Okay, so, all right, let's get back on to JMJ. <laughs> so, yeah, so the highlands of Guatemala and the fact that the Mayan people, at least these small groups, were still there and still following these old traditions and following the calendar. Right, and I had done some research and brought some books with me and, um, you know, reading about, uh, that was sort of my introduction to Mayan tradition. And after I returned from that first trip, I started doing some more research and just reading more on it. I, I sort of tended to gravitate towards the uh, academic material because it seemed to me that a, a lot of the popular literature, although it's in, intriguing in its own way, um, some of it's unreliable. And I, I always had a penchant for just digging deep into the into the research and the information. Hmm. Uh, I realized pretty early on that there were quite a few unresolved questions about the Maya calendar. In particular, this 2012 date, I'd read that the the Maya calendar, the long count calendar, has this long cycle of time and and that it's slated to end on December 21st, 2012. Mm. And uh, I hadn't really seen that uh, date mentioned in any other books except for Frank Waters and uh, another book from another direction that I had read by that time that mentioned 2012 was The Invisible Landscape oh, yeah. by, by yeah. Dennis and Terrence McKenna. Right. came out in 75, and I'd encountered that book oh, a couple of years before that first trip. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing because uh, just the way that they parsed out all that information and, and connected it, I thought that was a brilliant... And I didn't even know who these... These two brothers were, and of course, Terrence later emerged, and Dennis did, in his doing, very important work in uh, pharmacology. Absolutely. Yeah, so so they emerged later on, too, as I got to know Ter- Terrence a little bit better. Uh, so that was, a, of course, a book that mentioned 2012, and it just piqued my curiosity even more about what this date was about, mm-hmm. so... Well, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about Terence uh, as we get into the program, maybe because I know that he he wrote the foreword to uh, Cosmogenesis 2012, and uh, the foreword alone is worth reading. <laughs> yes. So uh, as 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 were most of his writings, of course. But uh, uh, at any rate, we'll uh, we'll definitely get into that a little bit more because I think that 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 may be something that people. Uh, are interested in because there's sort of a verification cross uh, from a from a completely different perspective uh, that happened independently, and I think that's very very interesting part of this whole thing. Oh, it is for sure. All right, well, so let's continue. You're in uh, your your first trip down to Guatemala, and you see that this is going on. What are you thinking about? Well, it was a very transformative experience as, as many first trips out of the country can be opening up to another culture mm. and 
my target really was to get a sense for what the Maya were about as a people, and um, I, I wasn't planning on writing books at that time. My subsequent trips back to Guatemala really involved more along the lines of uh, being an independent journalist. Mm. I was interested in what was going on in Nicaragua with the Sandinista Revolution, mm. and I made a trip down there, and I was writing journalistic essays for a newspaper in Chicago and sending them back. And uh, I also did relief work, as you mentioned. Uh, I was very interested in... The situation with the Maya in the mid-80s in Guatemala was uh, pretty horrendous because right. there were death squads going around and stuff like that. Yeah, that was just an absolutely miserable time in South America and Central America in general. Yeah, and as I got, uh, as time went on and we got into the early 90s, I, I sort of uh, got more engaged with the research and I started, uh, I wrote a paper for another magazine and and I just uh, got more and more intrigued with some of the unresolved questions, and it, it led to some of my early books. Mm -hmm. I've always had an interest in uh, philosophy and uh, physics and uh, those kind of things, and so I naturally gravitated towards kind of an academic approach to these things. Uh, but I was trying to educate myself uh, so that I would be prepared to delve more deeply into the unresolved questions and find out where the fringes were. You know, you have to sort of immerse yourself in an interdisciplinary field of data to, to feel like you have a, a good grasp of the whole picture and then feel out the edges and where the questions aren't being answered and and, and where there's no questions being asked. You yeah. know, that that's yeah. really a key thing is to learn how to ask the right questions. I agree. Yeah, and out on the fringes, out on the edges, that's where that's where the interesting stuff lies. All right, well, what was that first book? Was that Journey to the Underworld, Journey to the Mayan Underworld? Journey to the Mayan Underworld, yeah. Right, and that was actually, gosh, that must be 15 or 16 years by now. Yeah, 1989. It, oh, it, it was kind of a travelogue. Um, that was, some of my early writing involved uh, stories, short stories, and graduating to a travelogue was a natural step, but it also included in it some of the preliminary research that I was doing into the Maya calendar and I was finding some interesting things around the mathematics and the uh, sacred science philosophy inside of the, the calendar system. Alright, well let's, um, I, I'm, I'm going to mention your new book as well, uh, it's called Pyramid of Fire and I think Marty Matz actually was somebody, uh, was, is involved with it, is it a co-author or was that uh, Marty Metz was uh, my co-author on that book. Yeah, it was, so that, that's really an interesting book. Do you want me to go into it right now? Or? Well, let's, let, let, let's talk about it a little bit la later. Okay. But, I, but I'm going to give the website out again so people can go uh, and take a look at all this stuff. Um, it is uh, www.alignment2012.com. But yeah, we'll get into your into your most recent stuff uh, as we get into the program. But um, let's continue a little bit more with these these first impression uh, mm -hmm. things that happen because I think they're so formative. Right. Well, yeah, and another real uh, formative kind of influence on me was when I contacted Terrence McKenna in uh, 19, 1990, I think, was our first contact. And he was so gracious to respond 
by mail. This was before the days of huh. Internet and so on, of course. So, right, right. you know, the old uh, tradition of correspondence and letter writing. And uh, and so we had a little exchange going on around uh, the I Ching and uh, 2012 and the Maya. And um, I think he sent me that piece that he wrote for Revision magazine called Temporal Resonance. Mm. That was really an interesting piece. And... Uh, so more time goes by, and I'm doing, you know, at this time I wasn't really uh, researching 2012, although I was getting deeper and deeper into um, different aspects of the, the Mayan calendar with, like, the, like for example, the, the Mayan Venus calendar. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I wrote a book in 1992 uh, called uh, Zolkin. Zolkin is the yeah. word for the 260-day calendar. Mm-hmm. Zulkin, Visionary Perspectives and Calendar Studies. And at the time I thought, well, this is my magnum opus, you know. And, <laughs> and I did get it published with a little place called Borderland Science Research Foundation out in California. <laughs> and it, it focused all on the Dresden Codex, which is one of the surviving Mayan books. Right, and it has right. sacred almanacs in there about Venus and Mars and, and the eclipses and so on. And so I did a real study of that and presume to uh, reconstruct the Venus calendar and hypothetically place it in modern times and, and start it anew to sort of re-inaugurate the ancient Venus calendar and see how well it really did track uh, Venus phenomenon. And, of course, it does track Venus phenomenon very well. And uh, so that really, was really consuming for me in the early 90s. But uh, after this sort of first first round of research culminated in uh, late 93, early 94, I turned my attention back to the 2012 thing, which had continually been sort of pulling at me. And and then, actually, it was um, some clues that I stumbled across in... Uh, actually, it was an interview that Barbara and Dennis Tedlock did for Parabola magazine mm, great, in early '93, yeah, yeah, the Crossroads issue, mm. and it was all about the archetype or the theme of crossroads. Well, this is a very central concept in in the realm of Mayan creation mythology because, as as Dennis himself points out in his translation, um, the cross, the astronomical cross formed by the Milky Way, like the bright band of the Milky Way, mm-hmm. where it crosses over the ecliptic, right. the path of the sun, moon, and planets. It makes a cross in the sky. And, well, in Mayan iconography and symbolism, that is a very, very important... In fact, it's the, uh, it's the Mayan sacred tree. And the Mayan sacred tree, it's, uh, it's a very, very important... Um, aspect of, of what I later discovered was central to the 2012 alignment. And uh, so that was a real breakthrough in a, in, a, in a key for me, as well as I, I finally asked the right question around about 2012, which was, well, where was the 2012 calendar invented? Mm. You know, like what nobody at that point in early 94, nobody had really asked that question or investigated it, although when you look at the academic literature, you can find the answer. And this is where Izapa comes in. Yes, yes. In fact, 
you know, esteemed Maya scholar Michael Coe, hmm. he had said that, uh, well, it's very clear-cut that Izafa was involved in the very important formulation and adoption of the long count calendar. And uh, that's kind of an academically cautious way of saying that, yes, <laughs> Izafa is the place hmm. where the long count calendar emerged. Amazing. So... Yeah. All right, so the question then becomes, what is so special about Izapa? But I think before we go there, maybe we better talk about these alignments to begin with and just do some sort of definitions and let people... Uh, we, we need to know what it is. You know, when we talk about a galactic alignment of this sort or another, what are we really talking about? Okay. <clears throat> and by way of introducing this aspect of the discussion, I'll cast back to the... <clears throat> amazing book called Hamlet's Mill oh, that book. also was influential uh, for Terence McKenna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this book came out in 1969. Giorgio de Santillana and his partner, Hertha von Dechend, they wrote this book. And basically the thesis is that the skies shift. Uh, this is a phenomenon called the precession, the precession of the equinoxes. It's an astronomical fact. Um, but their thesis is that many, many ancient cultures were aware of this process, and they encoded the process into their mythology. So once again, it's that key of um. astronomy and mythology go together. Right, right. Okay, right. so, well, the Maya 2012 date is an end point, and it's part of their world age doctrine. Many ancient cultures have this, World Age Doctrine. They believe, it basically states that uh, humanity goes through different long periods and there's, you know, a variety of different ways of framing it in terms of numbers of years. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's noticed most, um, uh, it's very noticeable in the astrological doctrine of the Twelve Ages. Mm. Yeah, and um, so the, the, with the, Skies are shifting with precession, and that's a phenomenon that's caused by the slow wobbling of the Earth on its axis. Mm. So how to measure this? You know, this is a question. How mm. to measure the world age shiftings and so on. What we see is that the sun on the solstices is slowly shifting through the sky in relation to background features. Now, background features would be the constellations, the stars, and, and the Milky Way, for example. So in relation to those background features, the, the equinoxes and the solstices are shifting. And this is precession, the precession of the equinoxes, but it equally affects the solstices. Right. Now how ancient sky watchers would see this is they'd be looking at the... Um, the changing positions of the sun on the solstices or the equinoxes and and how it's shifting into say for example a new constellation or maybe it's coming into closer conjunction with a particular star uh, in the background another very prominent feature that can be used to track procession would be the milky way hmm. and the milky way stretches overhead like a big finish line in the sky and the sun on the solstice is slowly, you know, moving towards this finish line. And in fact, this is what I'm getting at here is the alignment that culminates 
in the years around 2012. Basically, what this is, and it is an astronomical fact, is the alignment of the December solstice sun with the Milky Way. And that's why I call it a solstice galaxy alignment, mm -hmm. or just a galactic alignment, generally speaking. Um, and as Hamlet's Mill alluded to in a very circumspect way, but it is in there, uh, these alignments to the frame of the galaxy happen uh, once every quarter procession, you know, because it involves either either the equinoxes or the solstices. Mm -hmm. But when you, <clears throat> so it kind of depends on how you um, define it. If you use the specific term of the December solstice sun, well, the December solstice sun lines up with the Milky Way once every 13,000 years, or half a procession cycle, because a full procession cycle is 26,000 years. Right. Yeah. Right. So what's happening as we get closer and closer to 2012 is that the solstice point, or the solstice sun, the sun on the solstice, is uh, going to be lining up with the uh, bright band of the Milky Way, and that part of the Milky Way that contains the center of the Milky Way. The bright bulge in the center is called the nuclear bulge. Right. Well, that's the galactic center. It's it's between Sagittarius and Scorpio. Right, right. And uh, so that's what we're approaching, and that's really a profound thing when you think about it. Mm. You know, we are lining up with the center of the galaxy yeah. in a way that happens only once every 26,000 years. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it's also profound because I was talking to Dr. Paul LaViolette on the, on the phone, and uh, I think you're familiar with his work as well. I'm, cer uh -huh. I'm certain that you are, but he was very clear about the significance of Scorpio and Sagittarius and you know events that uh, certainly occur at the center of galaxies from time to time, of which we don't really know the results, I don't think, uh, fully. But anyway, certainly stuff that, uh, uh, that falls right in line with your work. And Paul's work is very interesting. And, um, yeah, with the safer galaxies that erupt mm. into a greater activity, very, very interesting. This, then, it's also sort of what you're getting at here, sort of, defines the crossroads or the forking of paths, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or at least it sheds some light on how each of our uh, respective research is different because my main sort of focus is to reconstruct the ancient Mayan belief system mm -hmm. or paradigm or eschatology. And, um, you know, so we can start out with the intriguing and compelling fact that this alignment to the center of the galaxy happens to occur right when the Maya calendar ends. So see, we have two different things that are coincident, um, and we can say, wow, well, that means that the, the Maya must have, uh, must have been intending to target this galactic alignment with mm -hmm. their calendar. Well, sure, that's a possibility, but back in 94, I realized that I, I couldn't simply rest with the assertion of that. So that was really the beginning point of the research, you know, looking into Mayan mythology and the site of Izapa and the carved monuments from Izapa. And Mayan traditions like the sacred ball game, I realized that the sacred ball game uh, 
the symbolism of that basically encodes the astronomical alignment. Huh. Wow. John, I've got a couple of questions for you before we get on to uh, the Izapa cosmology. Okay. How do we know that the alignment will occur? In other words, how do we know that the celestial event is actually one that will occur? Well, yeah, it's uh, qu quite apparent that uh, the solstices and the equinoxes spin around the sky in a certain way. And, uh, you know, so it's just a matter of timing and calculation as to when it's going to happen and unless we are willing to believe that maybe procession will just suddenly stop. <laughs> right. Yeah, certainly possible but highly improbable. Yeah, and and actually a good a good way, you know, for pe it, I do understand that it's a little bit hard to grasp this visually if it's just being explained um, you know, on the air. Uh I have uh visual aids to uh to 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 like visualizing the process in my books and on my website too. Um, if you just from the home page, if you click on the uh, what is the galactic alignment right there on the on the home page, it'll take you to another page that illustrates these things very nicely. Yeah, there's a great uh, piece actually at Nick Firenze's website too. That uh, right. di digital deal that he did. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I know he does have a very nice digital animation of of the uh, galactic alignment process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's linked at your site. So yeah, go go over to John's site at Alignment 2012. And click on the one that says what is the uh, what is the galactic alignment, and there are some there's some uh, helpful imagery there, and there's also a link over to Nick Fiorenza's website that has this real cool animation. So yeah, it's very nice. All right, sounds good. Okay, so 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 we're basically able to project forward and backward in time uh, using just known values, basically. Yeah, and actually, um, you know, astronomers have calculated the galactic alignment, and I introduce um, what we really should be thinking about is a zone because the sun itself has width mm. and uh, astronomers calculate these things using the precise midpoints right. of like the midpoint of the sun for example but mm. the sun is half a degree wide mm. so I talk about you know just to be fair I talk about a 36 year range right a window so to speak right right and and so yeah, you know, it's really important to be clear about these things. Uh, I don't think there, there should be any controversy about whether or not the alignment does happen. Right, right. Um, so it's just a question of, of uh, how we define it. Mm, okay, okay. The next one is the sacred ball game. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Okay. The sacred ball game is very, very central to the Maya creation mythology. And the Maya ball players would use a um, their hips. They couldn't touch the ball. They had to uh, hit this big rubber ball into the stone goal ring. And the stone goal rings were up high on the walls of the ball courts. The ball courts were generally uh, long rectangular shaped fields that had angled walls. And uh, there'd be two teams. And uh, the thing to understand about the ball game is that it wasn't so much about athletic prowess, although that was part of it. The real purpose of the ball game was that it was a mystery play. So you had uh, different um, mythological uh, players, like, for example, the ball itself 
<clears throat> refers to the creation mythology in which the uh, the game ball in the creation myth was the severed head mm-hmm. of the hero twin's father. And uh, so there's this whole mystery play mythology that plays itself out in the reenactment of the creation myth on the ball field. On the ball field. Yeah. How, how often was the game played? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably during festival times. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it was probably for sure played uh, during the harvest of corn, during the harvest season, which would be, uh, you know, midsummer mm-hmm. or late summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the symbology of the of the ball game suggests that it was about the death and rebirth of the sun, because mm-hmm. the game ball was a symbol of the sun lord and you know his severed head. And then when the ball goes into the goal ring, that was like symbolizing that the sun is reborn. So it's a victory of the of the powers of light over the powers of darkness, mm. the lords of the underworld. And so that designation refers to the the time of the year of the winter solstice because that's when the previous sun dies and the new mm, sun is the born. The sun is born, yeah. Yeah. Um you you mentioned the hero twins. Maybe you could expand a little bit for people who aren't that familiar with the with with the creation mythology of the Maya, uh, a little bit about the, the the story of the hero twins. Okay. Uh, in simple form, it's basically began with the hero twins' father, uh, and he was a, a prime primary solar lord, and uh, he's playing the ball game and he's practicing and. Uh, he's making a racket, and uh, the lords of the underworld, which of course they're below the earth, uh, they you know challenge him to a ball game. So he has to journey into the underworld, and to journey into the underworld, he has to pass through the Shabalba Bay, which is the road to the underworld. Now this designation, and it's in the creation myth, and Dennis Tedlock parses this out very nicely, the Shivalba Bay, the road to the underworld, is also in the sky. And it's the uh, the place along the Milky Way that's uh, referred to as the Dark Rift. This is a great cleft along the Milky Way that's caused by interstellar dust. Right. So I'm just mentioning this just to show how the mythology is, is very, very intimately wrapped up with the astronomy. So Wanhunapu, the hero twin's father, he journeys into the underworld and he's tricked by the dark lords and they cut his head off and they hang it in a tree and he eventually impregnates Blood Moon and she gives birth to the hero twins. Mm. So, you know, their father, uh, they don't really know him. You know, he was sacrificed by the dark lords. But they find out what happened when they find their father's ball game equipment in the rafters of their grandmother's house. <laughs> so they they make a vow to avenge the death of their father, and not only that, but they're going to resurrect him. So right away, the main storyline of the creation myth is the rebirth of the Sun Lord, and the hero twins are going to facilitate the rebirth of their father, the first Sun Lord. Now, the astronomical designation of the hero twin's father as the first solar lord 
the first sun, the first sun of the year, would be the December solstice sun. So he, he is a representative of the December solstice sun. So the Hero Twins, they too journey to the underworld and do battle with the lords of the underworld, but uh, they're very tricky, and they trick the dark lords and sacrifice them. In fact, this whole final scene uh, takes place in the ball court, and, and this is where the creation myth plays itself out. And uh, So finally, at the end of the story, they are able to successfully... Uh, resurrect their their father and return him to his rightful uh, place and so this is all uh, played out in the ball court and it is the central creation mythology but it also speaks to the doctrine of the world ages because in the creation myth uh, they speak about the previous world ages and the culmination of the ball court battle scene with the hero twins that is the culmination of the uh, the battle between the forces of light and darkness that occurs at the end of an age so this is an eschatological uh, myth and um, so because of that it basically refers to the uh, events that play themselves out at least symbolically uh, in 2012 yeah, you know, and it, uh, just as an observation, it it's very similar to the Egyptian uh, creation mythology. That's right. Yes, and a number of other ones too. I think that's right. <laughs> it is a common archetypal theme, um, and basically, I think it is a common theme that you see. What I refer to it as the end times dynamic. Now, and I don't mean the end of the world in some definitive sense. The end of a cycle the end of a cycle in nature whether it's the end of a lunar cycle or a solar cycle or a vast 26,000 year processional cycle there are certain uh, dynamics or processes that unfold during the end the end state yeah, yeah i think that's fair yeah and it's basically you know the the polarization the polar the pulling apart and we see this in the world today actually in the world political stage my gosh it's so polarized it's us against them and mm. this kind of this kind of talk and yeah the forces of light and the forces of darkness uh pulling apart yeah it sure seems that that seems to be coming more apparent uh, regardless of what your <clears throat> particular mythology of choice is you know that's just sort of in your face Right, right. All right, well, look, uh, one more quick one here. Before we get too deeply into the Izapa cosmology, uh, the correlation question. Oh, okay. Yes, this is a very important question, and my early, early research was involved in, in settling this question. All right, let's explain what it is really quickly, and then maybe you okay. can give a little uh, solution to it. Well, it's basically the question of how the Maya, correlate, the Maya calendar correlates with our own so we can say with certainty what day it is today in the Maya calendar. Ah, yeah, so you can't just randomly say, well, this is what, so, so you can set it up. Right, and, and the most important consequence of this is that we can say with certainty when the end of the, of the long count cycle is. Right. In other words, why is it December 21st, 2012? Well, well it's because we, the correlation question is settled. And uh, you know that's that's a long that was a long process in in Mayan 
scholar, you know, scholars worked on that for many decades and, and uh, settled the question. Uh, basically, by 1950, the question was settled, mm-hmm. although there's been, you know, different factions throughout the years that, uh, you know, suggest alternate correlations. Okay. All right. Well, so here we are. So you, you're, you're, you're in Maya land. You're in Mexico, and you realize that, that uh, af- after all of your research that this thing ties in and that there's really an alignment in the sky that matches up with the end date. And so at that point, where, is this when you, when you f- follow further back and try to find the source of the calendar itself? Is this when you go to Izapa? Yeah, this is kind of like the watershed. You know, all the other researchers that we've mentioned, the Tedlocks and, and so on, uh, have fed into um, the education, bringing me to the point of basically the, the brink of what is knowable. And, and so it's then a question of synthesizing it all into a reasonable reconstruction and to show how this alignment scenario uh, was encoded into the basic core institutions of the Maya is really the unique thing that I put on the table, showing how the end date alignment and the astronomical features involved in that are really key players in the Maya mythology as well as the sacred ball game. And other things, too, like uh, king crowning ceremonies and so on. And so, so just also uh, just another interesting sort of context that might be interesting. By this time in my life, uh, 1994, I was living uh, back in Colorado, and um, I'm an independent scholar, and so I don't get support from the universities to do this. And all my trips down to Mexico, by that time I'd taken five trips, and they were all done on my own uh, dime on a shoestring and saving up money working jobs and uh, going for sometimes four weeks, sometimes six weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then, you know, I basically realized that I was going to have to do some serious research into this, and so I set my life up so that I could live very simply and uh, just work a part-time job. And so after I sort of made this, this found the key and that key being that Izapa was the place to look. I realized I was going to have to sit down for several years and really parse this thing out, and uh, that's what I did. So 1994, 95, 96. By the end of 96, I'd really gotten uh, gotten the whole thing downloaded and was in the process of writing my uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. Right, which came out, what, was it 97 or 98 that that came out? It, it came out with Baron Company in, in uh, June of 1998, but I always liked to, um, my early books were self-made and self-published, and uh, I always liked to do it that way. Hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, the one with Borderlands was published with them, but I always liked to bring a project to completion. It's almost like... If you're a creative artist and you're writing a song, mm. you have to like push it out. It's like giving birth. Mm. You, know, you have to complete the thing, mm. you know, and, and get it out uh, into manifestation. And so I actually had completed the prototype copy myself in uh, mid 
97 and uh, actually distributed some of those at some of the events that I was doing at the time. Um, in in, in uh, mid-97, I was invited to present my research, which promised to be uh, a, a really amazing breakthrough in the realm of, of Mayan studies. I was invited to present my research at the Institute of Maya Studies mm -hmm. in Miami. So that really was uh, a breakthrough, and there was a lot of good feedback at that time uh, on the uh, the new connections that I had made. Yeah, I wanted to mention that you had been asked uh, and and had had taught as a guest um, scholar, I guess is the word for it, to, to teach at a number of pretty prestigious institutions. So. Yeah, and uh, around this time, my friendship with Terrence was uh, becoming closer. Mm. I had asked him in late 97 if he'd like to write the introduction to the book, simply because I looked to him as a person who was doing, a person that had tuned into the archetypal importance mm. of 2012. Mm, no question about that from his own perspective, of right. course, but also I recognized him as really the first uh, person in print with his brother Dennis in that book that they wrote in 1975, The Invisible, right, Landscape, the Invisible Landscape, that they had mentioned that there would be this alignment happening around the turn of the century. Mm. So, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due, and also I was always inspired by how Terence could elaborate on very complex things oh, in gosh. a way that was accessible and clear. Yeah, he was, he was in one of his favorite words, he was astonishing. <laughs> John, we were beginning to touch on the Izapa cosmology because this uh, discovery of the galactic alignment led you to Izapa and it sounds like you sort of decided to immerse yourself down there for a while. Well, I did make several trips down there uh, to examine the site and look at the carvings. Uh, but, in fact, a lot of the research uh, was done stateside, uh, mainly accessing the very good information that was uh, done by the Brigham Young University Really? Uh, in their study of the site of the Zappa. Hmm. Um, and uh, so with that data on hand, uh, I was able to uh, examine uh, the original line drawings of the carvings that were found at the site in the 1950s and 60s, because even though they had since reset them, the carvings, uh, they had eroded quite a bit, being exposed to the weather. Uh, the beautiful thing about Izapa is that uh, the site was a ceremonial site, and there's over 60 carved monuments, uh, and they're pictographic monuments, not like hieroglyphics. So mm. there's like pictures of the hero twins and so on. Right. And the site was basically left undisturbed since the time that it was abandoned about oh oh about 1900 years ago. So the carvings, although they had some of them had toppled down, luckily face down in the mud and so on, so that the things were preserved, um, the archaeologists were able to reset the monuments in their correct orientations and so on. Uh, so that's the amazing thing about the site of Izapa. Um, yeah, that was uh, 
that was one of my questions was these um, carvings that you're talking about, of which they did tracings or uh, I don't, what do they do? They lay something over it and tracings or good you know angle light photo photography. Mm. And then they'll do line drawings on the photograph, yeah. Okay, but but the the carvings themselves are on these uh, monuments of sorts. Yeah, these or big stone monuments. Uh, some of them are, you know, over six feet tall, uh, and and uh, so there's different monument groups at the site of Izapa, and uh, scholars don't really, you know, archaeologists haven't really known how to talk about Izapa because it's it's pre-Maya, technically speaking, or early Maya, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, the characteristics, the motifs, uh, they're not recognizably Mayan, although some of the little ornaments are, um, part of, you know, partly are. And there's also Olmec influence. Mm -hmm. So the Olmec mm -hmm. people were the early, early culture in Mesoamerica. They go back to like 1500 B.C. Mm. And the Maya didn't really emerge into their classic period phase until about 200 A.D. Mm. And Izapa occupies the middle point. You know, Izapa was experiencing its heyday around, oh, around uh, 200 B.C., 100 B.C. Mm. And that's precisely when these carvings were carved. And it's also when the first, the very first... Uh, Monuments carved with the long count calendar are found mm -hmm. in the archaeological record. Okay, interesting. In that, in that region of Izapa. Interesting. And I think of the the ball court at Izapa is really ground zero of the 2012 prophecy hmm. because of the six or seven monuments that are there and the symbolism of those monuments, and especially the way that the ball court lines up with the rise position of the sun on the solstice, uh, there's, there's a whole encoded cosmology right there at Azapa, and it's, it's really very astounding, as parents might say. It's astounding. Yeah. This site of Azapa, it's, it's, and some of the carved monuments, the, the symbolism, even like regular scholars will point out that, well, here's the Milky Way, here's the cosmic alligator, and that's the Milky Way, and here's the bird deity, and that's the Big Dipper constellation. Uh, right. so, so even scholars will give you the pieces to the puzzle, but integrating that all together into one holistic picture is the big step that had to be made, and, and that's the contribution that, that I've put on the table. Hmm. Uh, let's resolve one thing that we just sort of alluded to earlier, and this was what happened at the end of the ball game. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay, maybe you can talk about that a little bit because that's the that's the representation, I think, right? Well, sure. And what happens at the end of the ball game is that the the game ball gets kicked through the goal ring. Okay. Now the symbology of this, which we didn't mention before when we were talking about the ball game, is that. The uh, game ball is the is the December solstice sun, and the goal ring is that dark rift in mm. the Milky Way near the galactic center. Right, that that dusty area we were talking about. Right, uh, ball courts basically uh, symbolize the Milky Way and the goal ring of the ball court, which is generally on the high wall in the center mm -hmm. of the field. Uh, that uh, game, that uh, goal ring is the dark rift 
the dark rift looks like a hole or a door or a portal mm. uh, in the Milky Way, in the sky. And so the astronomical alignment in 2012 is symbolized by the game ball going through the gold ring. Mm. And this is also uh, symbolic of the head of the hero twin's father being restored to his body so that he could be reborn at the end of the age. Okay. Yeah. Mm, I see. And this is on the monuments uh, at Izapa. Now, and, now, what happens to is? I guess I need to ask: Is it uh, a legend, or is it a true part of the mythology that the captain of the winning team at that point is beheaded himself? Well, that is something that was played out in the ball games throughout. Uh, Mayan history, and it does go back to this mythological prototype. Yeah, it sort of sounds like that. And the reason why the good guys, in a sense, you might say, is mm -hmm. the good guys get their heads cut off. Right, the winner. Yeah, like, for example, the, why does the hero twin's father have to have his head cut off? Mm. Uh, and, and the reason for that, it, it gets into a deep, a kind of a deep philosophical discussion right. about um, consciousness uh, in the ups and downs of history, you know, there's cycles in time, and like, say, the moon cycle, for example, there's periods of increasing darkness, and then there's periods of increasing light. And uh, to draw from a well-known tradition, Christianity talks about the fall and then the restoration mm -hmm. of Redemption. mankind. Sure. This is just an insight into the fact that consciousness must lose itself and then travel the path of history and at the end of history, consciousness restores itself into right relationship with its source. Right. This is the redemption. Right. So right. now, to answer your question, <clears throat> the game players, this is a kind of a counterintuitive thing, that the winners of the ball game would be the ones who got sacrificed. Right. Well, this is partly explained by what I just described, but there's also another aspect to this, and that is that um, uh, the sacrifice ritual in, in Mesoamerican religion, um, I mean, originally, symbolically, it had to do with uh, sacrificing the ego. Now, this isn't like annihilating the ego, the ego being the individual self. Mm -hmm. When we're over-identified with our egos or our individual selves, then the light of our true natures cannot be seen. So the, the, what that symbolizes, sacrificing oneself, uh, what that symbolizes is placing our egos into right relationship with our true selves. And in so doing, our our egos, in a sense, become transparent. Mm. They don't get annihilated. Right. Uh, now, what there's a later degradation to this basically spiritual teaching that happened in Mayan history, in which there'd be a literal sacrifice. Right. right. And uh, that that's where it uh, it gets a little complicated. Okay. All right. Hey, uh, John, can I ask you sort of a tangential question here? Sure. Uh, have you ever been to Palenque? Sure. Could you make just sort of a quick compare and contrast between Palenque and a place like Izapa? Because I know Palenque is very important too. Well, Palenque preserved some.
some of the, um, you, you know, the, the basic core teachings and <clears throat> some of the astronomical symbolism that you see on the carvings from Izapa mm-hmm. is also reflected on the carvings at Palenque. Huh. So, yeah, Palenque is also interesting, too, because around Palenque, there are uh, many uh, shamanic plants, plants mm-hmm. that shamans use to alter the consciousness and divine the location of lost objects mm-hmm. and so on. There's basically psilocybin mushrooms grow in the region of, of Palenque. And <clears throat> although today it's not true, back about 2,000 years ago, it's quite apparent that psilocybin mushrooms also grew in the region of Izapa mm-hmm. because archaeologists have found uh, ceremonial mushroom stones all over uh, in the region around Izapa. So this actually brings up a very interesting discussion about what were the influences on the Izapan shaman astronomers. Yeah, my I, I have, as one of my questions here, I was going to say, you know, we've pretty much clarified exactly what's happening with the galactic alignment. We know that it occurs. We know that it's a scientific fact. We know when it's going to happen. We know that the Mayan calendar basically ends, or the cycle at least ends, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question then becomes, well, why did they spend so much time uh, worrying about it? Why, why was it such, a, such an important part of their uh, their society, their culture, their uh, mythology, and how did they determine that it was important? Well, this is a very interesting discussion, and uh, I think it has to do with the evolution of of cosmology in human history, which is just to say that as time goes on, human beings are ever seeking to understand mm-hmm. how they fit into the vast universe in in deeper and bigger ways. So we see a natural evolution of, of cosmological modeling in the history of Western science where, you know, we had the geocentric model for so many centuries and then there was, of course, there was the Copernican revolution in the 1500s and we went to a heliocentric model. Well, there's even a larger framework than that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the level of the galaxy. Right. And then we belong one. to this galaxy. Mm-hmm. And I think that these tools of consciousness expansion, like uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and um, the kind of effects that psilocybin mushrooms have on the human mind, is one of enlarging the mind's ability to grasp larger and larger perspectives Mm. and frameworks so from that uh, viewpoint it's it's quite easy to understand why a culture that was using these tools would have opened up its gaze to this galactic level of of model making Hmm. interesting for people that are frequent listeners of this program, the the mushroom, in the right context, with reverence and respect and intelligence and the right dose, can be a great teacher. So they apparently had that figured out long before anybody here did. Oh, I believe so. Uh, it's, it's quite apparent that uh, shamans 
have mastered the techniques of uh, traveling in consciousness and exploring uh, the architecture of the human psyche, you might say, and and thereby coming to an appreciation for the architecture of the universe at large. Hmm. It's a very different way of approaching knowledge gathering uh, as compared to our Western scientific method, which seeks to, you know, gather data and make graphs and then postulate hypotheses about how the universe works. The shamanistic perspective, indigenous cultures uh, around the world, really, and even in uh, Western esoteric traditions, you know, like the hermetic adage is, as above, so below. Certainly, yeah. Which, is, which could be construed as meaning that if you go deep within, you can come to a direct Gnostic, you might say, mm-hmm. gnosis, meaning, you know, direct knowledge, knowledge. direct experience mm-hmm. of, of the way that the universe works. Yeah, and, and, and for those who think this is far out, uh, you can even look as close as the Christian uh, tradition and look at the Lord's prayer, the Our Father, so to, I, I believe it's called. You know, and in, in that particular prayer, they say the same thing. It's a little bit worded, a little bit differently, but it says, "On earth as it is in heaven." Exactly. And so these are these are representing the same ideas. Obviously, once you start to look closely at them. That's right. That's right. And specifically at at the site of Izapa. Um, it's it's very amazing because one of the carved monuments, uh, Stila Six, Monument Six, it shows a uh, Bufo Marinas toad, which actually uh, is one of the toads that secretes uh, 5-MeO DMT. And we're not really sure how they might have prepared this because that is a little bit different chemically from the DMT, the dimethyltryptamine that. Terence McKenna talks about quite a bit, which is a very, very potent hallucinogen. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, this carving, the the toad secretions would be harvested from the glands on the toad's uh, back or shoulder mm-hmm. in that region. And on this carving, uh, there's actually vision scrolls, what scholars call vision scrolls, coming out of the little dots on the on the glands of the back of this frog. Amazing. And the frog's neck is craned upwards, and his uh, his mouth is wide open. And in his mouth, or seemingly journeying into the mouth of the frog, is a little shaman in a canoe. Which is just to say that it's it's basically saying that with this frog, you can journey, <clears throat> make a vision journey into the maw of the underworld. Hmm. Uh, which is just to say that um, in the sky, basically. So, yeah, that's that's one clue that the shamans of Izapa were accessing or availing themselves of the uh, various consciousness-expanding tools in in their environment. Okay, well, this this now gets really interesting because, okay, well, before we go quite that far. Let's talk about what they determine. In other words, they obviously determine that this particular galactic alignment that we've been talking about all night is of some uh, some significance. In other words, more significant than any other particular alignment. Yes. All right, so maybe let's talk about that a little bit. And then we have to talk about the fact that Terrence and Dennis did uh, approach this thing from a completely different perspective, but somehow arrive at the same date. And then... Uh, mm-hmm. th- then it, it really gets uh, 
it really gets interesting. <laughs> well, it certainly does. So what did they find out? What do you think that they thought was going to happen that okay. was so significant about this alignment? Well, we, we can, this is the beauty of simply reconstructing from the direct source material, the primary source material, which is the creation myth and the carvings at the site. Okay. So I'm not really injecting my own sort of speculations here. I'm really just reading the monuments. Right. Okay. Basically, the, the monuments say that 2012 being anchored to this alignment, basically it's about coming back into connection with our cosmic heart and source. Mm. So now, having said that, we sort of detach from the astronomical references and we enter into the metaphysical or philosophical or spiritual teachings about what happens at the end of a cycle. Mm. So at the end of a cycle, whether it's the end of our own lives, which our life cycle uh, goes to the end point of death, the teaching is really about uh, cyclic time and what is beyond death but new life. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and of course, again, this is a realm that the mushrooms, etc., uh, are availing us to. That's right, and and really the the experience of death is an experience that we will all uh, encounter. But in the initiatory schools, initiation into direct knowledge of what it is to be human, a lot of these schools, of course, had a sacred sacrament of some kind, like mm. the mysteries of Eleusis. Sure. I believe that Azapa also was an initiatory center mm. in which people would uh, be initiated into this larger galactic cosmology or framework. And the spiritual teaching about this is that, as I mentioned briefly before, it has to do with the relationship between our individual selves, our ego selves, and our true eternal selves. Mm -hmm. So if we just sort of flip back to the uh, sort of tangible scenario with we're coming into alignment with the galactic center, right. and that's a symbol of the cosmic heart and source. The Maya actually saw it as the, uh, the, the heart or womb of the great Milky Way mother goddess. Yeah, and it's not, it's not a metaphor anymore. Dr. Paul makes it very clear that the Galactic Center is a source of uh, the generation or the creation of matter, the creation of the, the, the galaxy itself. That's right, that's right. And inside of our deep subjective experience of, of uh, like, pe people that have a, um, sort of a revelation or a born-again experience, they actually feel like they've come into contact with uh, God or Jesus or Krishna, or or they feel like they've um, they've had a glimpse of their true source, mm. and and that can only happen when the ego is temporarily eclipsed or made transparent, or you know Terence Terence would talk about the effects of say psilocybin mushrooms is that you have a boundary an ego-dissolving experience. Right, right. Uh, and uh, the, the purpose, of course, is not to permanently annihilate the ego, but to give the ego a sense of how it is related to the larger picture. So then when you come back down from that glimpse, your life can be reoriented in a, in a correct way to... You know, it, it's basically a teaching about 
uh, coming into right relationship with the cosmic heart and source. Yeah, and you come back with a broader perspective. Right. So if there's a prophecy to be to be stated, the prophecy is basically that at the end of the cycle, all the shadows are coming out screaming for integration. So it's kind of a crazy time. Mm. There's a lot of noise. Right. Uh, basically, the ego uh, is ruling and ruining the planet. So this is the lesson in the creation myth regarding the vain and false ruler of the previous world age, Seven Macaw. He had to be put in his place by the hero twins. Right. He had to be, they had to make him fall. They had to humble him. They had to humble ego so that their father, Wanhunapu, could be reinstated. Now he's sort of an important guy because he is the one that's, united with the galactic center you see so it's kind of like the eternal true self then takes the upper hand in steering the rudder of history okay uh, all right now okay you mentioned steering the rudder is this related to the canoe image sure exactly well it's all tied together there's the symbolism works um on many different levels and that too is really intriguing because the way that the Milky Way can be symbolized by the ball court, or the canoe, mm. or the river, or the road, it speaks for a kind of multi-dimensional uh, mind frame, you might say. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of ability to, to integrate a multi-dimensional perspective is also a hallmark, a hallmark of the uh, psychedelic experience. Right, right, right. And one of the main reasons why it's so frightening to establishments, I guess. That's right. That's you know, right. It's just political dynamite because it does give you a broader perspective, one that isn't particularly wanted by those in power. Exactly, exactly. And your final uh, point on why uh, the the use of uh, you know uh, psilocybin mushrooms as a consciousness expanding uh, experience and, and used in the proper way and so on mm -hmm. would. Uh, convey somebody with an ability to to sort of see the importance of 2012 well i think that it just has to do with um <clears throat> when the when the consciousness is freed from being anchored to the limited uh sense of self-identification it will naturally gravitate to its attention to the the center of energy in the local mm. universe, I guess. Mm. Mm. That's maybe not a real good answer. Um, it's something that needs to be talked about and languaged. Um, right, I agree. I think that it has to do, in, in my process anyway, it had to do with uh, being able to integrate and synthesize large amounts of information from many different disciplines. And again, that speaks for the multidimensional perspective that, um, you know, one one can... Uh, strive to achieve and so because the Maya shaman astronomers I believe were really of a, of a multi-dimensional mindset it takes a similar mindset in order to hmm. see or grok as you would say hmm. what they were about I understand well it is amazing stuff John so so let's talk a little bit more about Terence and the fact that, uh, because he did write the foreword to the book, and uh, and it, it actually blew me away, because when I uh, read your book, 
I'm not sure if I heard you interviewed uh, on Coast to Coast or something. I was a big Art Bell fan at the time, and it was before I was doing radio myself, but or it may have been on Jeff Rents. I don't know, but uh, it was one of those two. I'm certain of it. But yeah, I got interviewed by Art Bell in uh, August of '98, I think. Yeah, because I got I got your book in 1998, and I know it was it had just come out, and I had um, only shortly before that uh, struck up a conversation uh, of my own with Terrence uh, over the web. I had become involved with a, with a group that was called the Novelty Group, which is a whole other story. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, um, so, but I had no idea that you and he, you know, were in communication and friends and all that. So anyway, I opened your book and saw the foreword by Terrence, and I was blown away. And uh, it, uh, it was before I had read uh, Invisible Landscape. So then, of course, I read that, and uh, and I was interested in the I Ching uh, long before, and it is just remarkable. Uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about what Terence did, how he sort of came to his conclusions with regard to the I Ching in this completely different methodology, and what you guys did together. Well, it's a very fascinating story of how uh, Terence uh, came to understand the inner wave form inside of the I Ching, and I think that was a brilliant uh, deduction that he made about the I Ching is made up of 64 hexagrams, but each one of those hexagrams has either a broken line or a mm. solid line, right. and, it, and it makes a six-layered hexagram. So you've got basically then six times 64, uh, which is 384 units of change. And so Terrence really figured out a way to track the differences of change from, from hexagram to hexagram. And there's a specific order of the I Ching hexagrams that's called the King-Wen sequence. King-Wen sequence, right. And in that a sequence, uh, there's a certain wave form that gets generated. And Terrence, uh, one of the brilliant things I think that he really put on the table was this idea that time is not constant in the way that Western science likes to think that if you do an experiment on Tuesday, there's no reason to expect that the same exact experiment, if you do it on Thursday, is going to be any different. Hmm. But the fact is, or apparently, uh, time does have different qualities at different times. And, and this is what Terrence labeled uh, novelty. Right. And the, I think the important point uh, that has to be made is, is that Terence, working in the mid-70s, he realized that this novelty wave, it was kind of like a, a string getting wrapped around a, a central pole, mm -hmm. and it gets, as you wrap a string around, like the tetherball game, you know, the, the ball goes flipping around, the central pole goes faster and faster and faster, mm -hmm. and then boom, you're at the center. Mm -hmm. Well, the novelty factor is speeding up, number one, and number two, there has to be a moment in the historical timeline that the wave reaches its end point. This is the theory as Terence was parsing it out in the mid 70s. Well, he, he looked at demographic graphs on population and pollution and resource depletion and so on. And, and he picked uh, somewhere in 2012 would have to be the end of the wave. And then uh, later, uh, a short time later on, somebody pointed out to him that well, you know, Terrence, the, the Maya calendar ends in December 21st, 2012. So he looked at that, and, and 
his novelty wave theory, the time wave zero theory, uh, uh, got formulated at that point. Now, it should also be said that he, he was aware of the, um, the alignment that was culminating towards the end of the millennium, as alluded to in the book Hamlet's Mill. Right, right. Well, and I thought I think Terence thought that was really an intriguing separate confirmation of of his work, and but I, he didn't really pursue exploring that uh, in terms of you know the Maya calendar end date and 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 the way that I explored that was to show how the astronomy of the end date alignment scenario is is really encoded deeply into the core Mayan institutions like the ball game and so on. Mm. So we really sort of. Uh, tracked the 2012 thing from from different perspectives and yet came to the same conclusion about it being uh, about a transformation about uh, you know Terence would talk about it as uh, going to the next plane or the uh, the singularity at the end of time the eschaton manifesting at the at any rate he didn't talk about it as uh, as a, like a doomsday annihilation, as we see so often in the world, in, in, in the marketplace today, that so many people are talking about the doomsday of 2012. And I think that that just needs to be sort of called for what it is, which is basically um, uh, a not very intelligent market, marketing strategy. It, it's, it's, a, it's a marketing strategy to sell books, and it's not very intelligent because there's a much deeper discussion that can take place about what the nature of, uh, of the end of cycles are, are about. Well, you know, and to, to sort of close this thing with Terence, uh, as we come full circle, the interesting thing is that the, the information on the calendar and all of the stuff that's on the monuments that we've been talking about was apparently inspired through vision quests, etc., that the shamans uh, embarked upon, and they used, as we spoke about, the mushrooms. And interestingly enough, uh, Terence was inspired to do his work on the I Ching through exactly the same mushroom. That's right. And this is just astonishing again to me, and and a, and a, and, a, and a real verification, at least in my own mind. And it's what just absolutely blows me away about the whole story. Well, if I could just very briefly say that um, evolution or advances, I believe, comes from a revelation from above. It's counterintuitive to the Darwinian model that, you know, chance mutations and all that kind of stuff. Right. Especially in the cultural realm, in the realm of ideas, the advance of our understanding of the cosmos, it comes when we open up to the higher transcendent wisdom that can then come down and animate and expand our existing institutions and and belief systems and opening up to that higher dimensional wisdom comes about through the use of these uh, these uh, sacred plants amazing all right well let's uh, let's ask you one final one I have to ask you what in your own mind what do you think is coming what do you think is going to happen well, if it's the end of time, then nothing should happen, because if something happens, then time hasn't ended. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the great conundrum at, yeah. the, at the end of history or wow. something. I think that uh, it's, it's basically, you know, 2012, I think, is a symbol for something that human beings have to deal with it every day. Mm. I mean, there are events that happen 
every hour of every day, and we have to respond to those events with either clamping down in fear or opening up to the to the mystery of something that lies beyond that. Right. Right. So I think that it's always about choice and the choices between uh, fear clamping down and remaining open mm. in a state of openness to the mystery. Amazing. Well said, John. It has been a fascinating conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime as we, uh, as we keep moving forward here. Well, thank you, Mike. I would love that, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, great. Well, John, we'll uh, mention the website one more time here. It's Alignment 2012. Thank you so much. One more time, and uh, amazing stuff. I can't wait to see how it all pans out, John. Well, thank you. All right, take care of yourself. Bye. All right, there you have it. Daniel Pinchback and John Major Jenkins brought to you this month on Dialogues. We'll be back next month with another presentation. We hope you can join us then. For information on upcoming events and interviews, please check us out on the web at www.futureprimitive.org. Information about Dialogues and Future Primitive, of course, can be found on the web at www.futureprimitive.org. Dialogues and Future Primitive are sponsored by the Marion Institute. Information about the Marion Institute available on the web at marioninstitute.org.